Well, thank you for braving the rain, the cold rain this morning. All right, whatever else you got, wherever you live. Um, glad you guys are here with us. Tough call making those decisions, but glad we are here together. Almost three weeks ago, uh, it was a Monday evening. It was the night, the two nights before snowpocalypse happened. Uh, you remember that week? Uh, I went home, and after minutes of being home, realized that one of my sons had temperature, flu-like symptoms. He was in bed already. A few uh, minutes later, uh, William comes in. He's not feeling good. Flu-like symptoms. Sent him to bed. I go to bed. Two hours later, I wake up. Flu-like symptoms. I go back to bed. I wake up Tuesday morning, and I'm going, okay, I cancel all my appointments. Um, this is just how it's going to be for the next few days. And so as I as I laid there, I decided that uh, Bailey had recommended a book to me. I thought, man, I'm going to knock this book out while I'm, I'm sick. You know, it'd be a good week to do that. So I reached over, grabbed the book, and I, and I started looking at the book. And, and I, I looked at the book, and I went, I, I, I can't see the book. Now, if you are under 40, you have no idea what we're about to talk about. <laughs> and so I put the book back down. I thought, it's the flu right? It's the flu. It's definitely the flu. So I put the book down, went back to sleep, woke up after lunch, grabbed the book, looked at the book, found the book right about here, and I went, something's not right. I mean, I got good vision, had that little surgery years ago, got rid of that, and, and, he, and I remember the doctors telling me, at one morning, you're going to wake up, and you're going to need readers, so I reached over, I found my wife's readers, and I put them, ha, she had them first. I put on my <laughs> wife's readers, and I put them on, and all of a sudden I went, oh, there's words. And I was still in denial, so, you know, she would come in there, and I'd kind of take them off real quick, you know, I'm all right, all right. So all week at night, I'd put on these readers, and so I decided to, to, to get out of denial. This past Monday morning, I went to the store, and I picked up a couple pair of reader glasses, and I, and I put on these reader glasses, and uh, I just grabbed a couple pairs. I didn't quite understand that there's a lot of variation between a one and a two and a half. Didn't quite know that. So I grabbed two and a half, one, two, and one, two and a half. I grabbed two of the opposite pairs. So I grab them. And Tuesday morning, I kid you not, Tuesday morning, we're up, we're reading a little bit. And I put on these glasses. And for 15 minutes, as long as I had them on, and, and by the time I got to the office, I was nauseated with a headache. I thought, what is going on? 40 really wasn't bad, but 46 is already starting out horrible. Something's not going right here. And so uh, I finally took the glasses back. I got the right glasses. And so now I have readers. Right? I feel like for some reason I should preach like this now. Because nobody wears readers like this. They wear them all down their nose. You know, I'm starting to figure that art out as well. Sometimes in life we need something from the outside lenses to give us corrective views on things that are going on around us. Sometimes they are physical. Sometimes they are a little bit different. If you watch, uh, I like to watch golf on some Sunday afternoons. I know for some of you that's the same as watching paint dry. Um, same equivalent. If I fall asleep doing it, I'm good, all right? Just a chance to relax, watch golf for a little while, and I'll hear these golf, golfers and these analysts say, well, you know, so-and-so just got a new golf coach a swing coach and a putting coach and a, a mental therapist to help his swing and all these things. And I'm going, these guys have been playing golf since they were three. 
They could hit a golf ball before they could walk. I mean, this is what they do their entire lives. But here's what happens. They get to a point where they do the same thing over and over, and they don't see the fault in the swing anymore. And so what do they do? They hire somebody from the outside, they video them, they take pictures of every part of their swing, and they analyze and say, see right here you're getting too loose, right here you're coming underneath the ball, and they're going through all these little pieces of the swing, and they're saying, hey, this part's really good. But let me just, from an outside perspective, let me show you where things aren't quite great. Some of you have had that happen in relationships. Some of you have been in a relationship. Maybe, you, you're, maybe you're newlyweds and you're, you're in the room and you're starting to realize that you nor the person you married is perfect, right? I mean, you know that, right? I mean, my wife is, but other than that, y'all are all out of, out of luck, all right? And so you start to realize, and then you sit down with someone, maybe a parent or maybe a friend, maybe somebody that's in your small group at church, and you sit down and you say, man, things are just really tough. And they put on some lenses, and they begin to point out things about you. And they say, well, you know, I mean, you're just missing it. You know, how how could you miss that? And you go, "I, I didn't see it. I didn't know. Our lives are full of opportunities where something from the outside comes in and gives correction to a part of our life. The people of God in the Old Testament often needed people to step into their lives, prophets and teachers to step into their lives, into their group and say, let me show you where you're missing things. You've got some great moments in your history and you've got some major flaws in your history. Let me come in and show you the greatness of God, but also let me show you the moments where you're just totally messing this up. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar, the Old Testament is full of examples and really is the picture of God's relationship to his people, the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were God's chosen people, promises and covenants made to them that they would be abundant, they would cover the earth. All these things are taking place. But in their history, just a little historical background, that things were not always great with the children of Israel. Not between their relationship to God because they disobeyed and God would forgive, they would disobey, God would forgive. And they would have this back and forth, but also they had a civil war within their groups. Twelve tribes, ten of them went north, two of them went south, the two in the south got Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Pretty important. The city of Jerusalem was where the temple was, where the center of religious life was. So the ten in the north got destroyed by outside folks. The two in the south were having some success for a period of history. But then a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar invaded them from Babylon. Now if you are a historian, you can study that in Scripture. You can study that outside of Scripture to see how it lines up. It's a beautiful way to see the validity of God's word. But this king, Nebuchadnezzar, comes in. He invades the city of Jerusalem. Now when you think of city, don't think Charlotte. Don't think High Point, don't think Thomasville, don't think Denton. This is a city in its entirety is 137 acres. That's less than 10 of these properties that we have here at the church. Not a massive, sprawling city. And so when you imagine the city of Jerusalem surrounded by this wall of protection, inside the city of Jerusalem was the temple. But during this Babylonian time, these folks came in and they destroyed everything. Scripture tells us this, And all the vessels of the houses of God, great and small, and treasures of the house of the Lord, and treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought to Babylon. They burned the houses of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire. They destroyed all its precious vessels. 
once a mighty people, now are left scrambling throughout the region. They no longer have a city. They no longer have a town. They no longer have a temple. They no longer have a place to say, this is home. And there's little gatherings of these people. Scripture calls them a remnant of the children of God that in pockets of places all throughout this region And God calls two men in the Old Testament to do something pretty incredible. He calls one guy by the name of Ezra. We won't look too much about his uh, story, but it's in the book of Ezra. You can read through that. But Ezra was called by God to go back to Jerusalem, to the land that was all broken down, and rebuild the temple, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice. So Ezra is called to go back to rebuild the temple. But he has another guy that he calls. His name is Nehemiah, and he calls Nehemiah to go back and build the city of Jerusalem. So I know that's way too much history for some of you, and it's been a crazy morning, and you got other things going on later on today, but just let me recount. People of, G- people of Israel, scattered, destroyed, lived in a city, Jerusalem, walls broken down, temple broken down. Years later, God calls a guy by the name of Ezra to come back and rebuild the temple. He calls a guy by the name of Nehemiah. You come back and build the walls around Jerusalem. For 90 years, the temple sat complete, and Nehemiah is called to come back and rebuild the walls. And this is how this relationship worked. Nehemiah, Israelite, he is serving another king. He gets message from a family, family friend that comes to him and tells him the destruction that's happened in his homeland. And here's what Scripture says in Nehemiah chapter 1. And they said to me, The remnant there, the small group of people there in the province who has survived the exile, the Babylonian exile, taking the people out of the land, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah sits down, he begins to confess the sins of the people. And as he's confessing the sins of the people, he gets a purpose by God that he is to be the one to go back to lead the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he goes to his king that he's serving as the cupbearer. This is a pretty bold moment. He is a cupbearer to a king, and while the king is, he's serving him, and the king notices Nehemiah is brokenhearted, he says, what's going on? And Nehemiah says, my homeland has been destroyed the city, the walls, the people. Would you give me permission to leave your service? Scripture says he asked, got permission from the king and the king's wife. Would you give me permission to go back to my homeland and rebuild the wall? The king says, sure. Nehemiah gets even bolder. He says, would you know that when I go back, I'm going to go through some difficult enemy lands, and I'm also going to need some resources. So would you send me with some folks to protect and with some things to begin the rebuilding process of another kingdom? Sure, take what you need. I'll send letters for you to go before you, you go. And so Nehemiah goes on this journey, goes back to his homeland, gets there, everybody's excited, everybody wants to help build the wall. No. Some of the folks are in opposition. They're saying, we don't know about this rebuilding of the wall. People in the region are realizing, hey, you rebuild the wall. Maybe something else happens to us. There's all this animosity, but Nehemiah sticks to the calling. The wall builder is going to be there. He rebuilds through the faithfulness of God. They rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The temple's inside the wall. And Scripture tells us that now the people of God, the the leftovers, the remnant, 
The people have been scattered all around. They begin to come back to the region. You guys still with me? It's going to get exciting. They come back to the region. And when you think this group of people come back, I want you to hear who came back. Now, I'm not going to read all the names because 90% of them I cannot pronounce, all right? But in the end of chapter 7, it says this. The whole assembly together was 42,360 people. There's 400 of you, 500 of you in the room this morning. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they had 245 singers, male and female, quite a choir. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. 45,000 people. Now, tonight there's going to be 70,000 people that are going to be gathered in one room and they're going to be celebrating and they're going to be going crazy. But imagine 45,000 people who've been scattered all over the world and all over this region at the time. They're starting to get word. Some things are going out and they're hearing the walls being rebuilt, the temples being rebuilt. These are the children of God. They've gathered themselves back together. And Nehemiah chapter 8 brings us to the point that all 45,000 folks had gotten together for a worship service. Woo-wee! Right? I mean, that is exciting stuff. The Sundays where we try to cram all of you from all three services in here are super exciting morning. And there might be a thousand of us. 45,000 folks, and they're all gathered together. And Scripture says, and all the people, chapter uh, 8, verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. There's Ezra, the temple builder. The Lord God had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. If I preach over 35 minutes, you guys are panicked, right? You're like, oh man, he's going over, oh really over, oh my kids, oh lunch, right? Morning till midday. In the presence of the men and the women of those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. These folks are having church, and here's what they're doing. The law, the the God's given word to the Israelite people was being read before the people. Ezra and the other scribes, Scripture tells us, began to read from it, to recount their history. There's a celebration going on. We read about it in verse 6. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered. What did they answer? I thought maybe y'all would get it. Like, just jump on it. Like, all the people answered. We got the first one down. We'll leave it. That was good enough, right? And they're answering. They're worshiping. Just imagine the resounding amens and amens. It says, and lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All these folks, generations have gone by. 
Many of these people would have never seen the city of Jerusalem before. Born outside of the region. God bringing them back to the region of their family, of their heritage. And now they're standing together with all these folks. And the book of the law is being read. And Nehemiah and these guys are standing there. And for a quarter of the day, they are cleaning out their spiritual closet. They're just laying it out there. Admitting their sins. Worshiping the Lord. Praising God. This was a multiple day experience. This was not one morning of the week. This was every day. Their past history is being accounted. Their prayer is taking place. There's repentance taking place. And then we come to chapter 9. I'm not going to read every verse of chapter 9, but I want to recount for you chapter 9, verse 1 through 16, if I can. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 16 Ezra and the scribes are reading about all the incredible moments, the but God moments that had happened in their history. There's the telling of the story of the Red Sea and how God brought them over on dry ground. There's the telling of the story of the pillar of fire leading them by night and the cloud by day, but God. There's the story of the reading of the guidelines of the Ten Commandments, and they're reading them, these stories, and their history. Again, imagine some of them have never heard some of these stories, and they're, they're hearing this account, and God is through Ezra and through the scribes. He's pouring this out for them. They're rejoicing. They're clapping. They're hurrah. I mean, it's a Colosseum-like atmosphere. They're talking about bread from heaven and water coming from a rock. Edison's got 45,000 people gathered, and for days on end, they're worshiping the Lord. But then we come to verses 16 and 17. And before we show this on the screen, I just want to invite you to go back to our opening. Verses 16 and 17, here's what Ezra does. He puts on a set of corrective lenses now. He's recounted how great God has been. Now, verses 16 and 17, we're going to hear a turn take place. We're going to hear the but God moment, but we're also going to hear the sins of the people. We're going to hear that Ezra is not going to let them get away with just going, yeah, this is awesome. He's going to remind them of the sins in their past. He's going to remind them of their faults. He's going to be the outside set of lenses to correct their vision, to let them see how great God is. Verse 16 says, And they, our fathers, acted presumptuously. And they stiffened their neck, and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Now, let me share with you what took place there. Those verses, those two verses are really an account. The beginning of verse 17 and all of verse 16 are a short account of Numbers chapter 12 through 14. In Numbers 12 through 14, God's people have been commanded, you go take the promised land, you get to the promised land, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to take care of you, but God's people doubted. Um, and they sent some spies to spy out the land. They still doubted God's plan. And so for 40 years, they wandered the desert. And at one point, they're saying, hey, let's elect a new leader. Moses isn't getting the job done. Let's go back to slavery. 
So see, verses 1 through 15, God is incredible, but God has done this, but God has done this, but God is moving here. But you come from a people, a group of people who are stiff-necked, who at one point in their history, right in the middle of God moving, totally forgot the power of God. The end of verse 17, though, he's, again, he's correcting them. He's helping them to see in, in full view who they are as a people. And more importantly, he's showing them who God is. He says, but you are a God. He's talked to them about their heritage, stiff-necked people. The latter part of verse 17 says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. The account goes on in the remainder of chapter 9 to remind them God's children cursed God, but he didn't forsake them. You sustained them for 40 years, but their shoes never wore out. For 40 years, they've been disciplined and they wandered. Their shoes never wore out. The soles on their feet, you fed them from above. You took care of them. You warned them. They repented. You forgave them. You warned them. They repented. You forgave them. They cried out to you. You heard them. They sinned against you. They broke all the guidelines and you forgave them. Again, verse 17 is that change that we've seen over the last two weeks together, the but God moment. He declares all the things, one issue. He's saying, listen, this is part of your past. But then he says, but you are a God ready to forgive. In my Bible, I highlighted the beginning of verse 17 in one color and the remainder of verse 17 in another. And then I circled, but you are a God in a third color so that, you would, so that I would never look past this and go, wow, something happened here. He goes on in verse 31 and 32, after he's recounted their history. He says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. Translation, you didn't kill them all. You didn't wipe them all out. You are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Would you read that with me there through awesome God? Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. I love how Ezra and the scribes are proclaiming this to them. They're saying, listen, you have been a sinful people, but you serve a great God. Not just a great God, not a good God, but a gracious God, a mighty God, an awesome God. This is who you serve, folks. 45,000 strong. Standing there going, man, the, the hurrah part was awesome. But now you're telling us that in our history there's some sin, but he's also reminding them in your history there's some sin, but in your history there is a gracious God. Goes on to say, God who keeps his covenants, his steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Ezra and the other priests who are reading, they're reminding the people. They're praying to God. They're thanking God. He's asking the hearts of the people to be moved. He's also coming to God and saying, God, just remember what we've been through. Don't forget us. They're reading. They're declaring these things over all the people. 
They're reading all the great moments in their history. And then he transitions and he says, but man, there's some kind of rust spots in there. There's some disobedience, but there's the forgiveness of God. And so I started thinking about this week. You guys, you, you go to an incredible church. I don't know if you know that or if you believe that, but I believe if you come to Rich Fork regularly, you go to an incredible church. It's not a perfect church. Um, I've said years and years because I heard it from somebody else. If you find a perfect church, don't go because you'll mess it up, all right? Um, it's just the reality. It's not a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination. But I just want to account for you kind of a chapter 8, early chapter 9 for you. A little bit about who we are. Every Sunday, you come in this place, you walk in, the lights are on, the band is ready, the song's on the screen, the things are printed, it's, it's, the, the heat is on, the air is on, somebody's not happy, it's too hot or too cold, we got that, all right? Protection from the rain, protection from the sleet, or whatever else has fallen out there, it's fallen pretty heavy, so I'm just going to keep on preaching, all right? We're just going to keep on going this morning. And you come in every Sunday, we have all these ministries, we have 300 plus volunteers that take the week to work, 300 plus volunteers that make the week to work, we have mission trips, we give to missions, we go on missions, we have worship in multiple services, we've got all these things taking place, we've got groups that meet on Sunday mornings, we have groups that meet on Sunday nights, we have groups that meet on Thursday nights, Friday nights, Wednesday nights, all these other times where people are growing in their faith. We take trips to various parts of our country. We paid off our debt a few years ago. We were able to help plant a church, churches in Africa and Honduras and now at Cornerstone Community Church in Lexington, which, by the way, they're not worshiping there today because of weather and all that kind of stuff. So some of them may be here with us, but they've had an awesome first three weeks there. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. We've trained leaders in Romania who have led youth camps, who've done some incredible things. But let us not trade the comfort of our past successes for the conviction of God. You see, this is for me. Because, man, I can rest in those things as a pastor and go, man, this is a great place. And it is. These are awesome people, and you are. This is incredible ministry, and it is. But let us not grow comfortable in the past. But let us, at times put on some lenses spiritually, and see some things that, about us. I want to share a few of those with you as your pastor. I want to share a few of those things, and I pray that through these words and through God's word, there's, there's conviction and clarity to, to us moving forward. We have become our boldness to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ for many of us in this room has been silenced over the years by fear. Fear I'm going to get it wrong. Fear I won't know the right words. Fear I won't know what to say. Fear they're going to say no. Fear I'm going to mess up the relationship. Fear that something's not going to grow right. So you know what I'll do? I'll just hold this back. And listen, I'm talking to me. This is coming at me full force this morning. But listen, but God has promised boldness to us. If I were honest, we, we proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ to save us but we don't ask the grace of Jesus Christ to invade us. And what I mean by that is, man, Jesus saved me, but don't invade my life enough for me to get rid of pornography, promiscuity. Don't invade my life long enough and hard enough to get rid of greed or hidden sins of anger and impatience. I'll keep these things tucked away, grace enough to save me, but don't invade me. But God is a God of grace for all eternity. What does this verse tell us? He is great, he is mighty, he is awesome. 
The desire, we, we desire the move of God, yet we do not desire to learn from the Word of God. We say, man, I want to I grow in understanding and I want to grow to be a better dad, a better husband, a better wife, a better neighbor, a better church, a better volunteer, a better spreader of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have more tools to study and to pick this book up and read it than we ever have in the history of mankind. We have more copies, more translations, more tools, more apps. We've traded times of prayer and repentance for moments where the only time we think that God moves at times is the crescendo of the music instead of the brokenness in our worship. And man, I'm just as much a part of this. I've been to coliseums and I've been a part and watched worship of 30,000 folks and those are incredible moments. But there also should be moments in our lives as they're pointing them through in Nehemiah 8 and 9. There's some high moments of 45,000 and they're saying, Amen, praise the Lord. But then what are they doing? They're bowing their heads in conviction and worship to God. Many of us have sacrificed accountability with community for relationships without guardrails. And here's, here's what I mean by that. We befriend people who will acknowledge and give us permission to act the way that we want to act. Man, if, if, if you can be my friend as long as you don't come down on this behavior in my life, we're good. You're my best friend ever. Young folks, man, I just sounded like an old folk with readers on, didn't I? Young folk out there, let Pappy tell you. <laughs> Something happens when I only have to preach twice. I just got to tell you. Don't trade what is hard for what is easy. Don't trade what is wrong for what is right. Don't take the easy path because everyone else is a part of the easy path. Allow God's word, young folks in the room, to put on the readers, to put on the lenses and examine God's word with friendships and accountability that will draw you to him. And parents, listen, many of us at times, in our house included, we traded biblical parenting for being best friends. And there's a season of life that that comes, but there's a cost if it comes in the wrong order. For us, we don't need to be liked on social media by our kids. We need to discipline and love wholeheartedly our children. And we're missing it. As individuals, I won't go too far here, but we are looking and some of us are searching for a political Messiah and it will not come. The Messiah has already come and his name is Jesus and he established an institution by which to conquer hatred, by which to conquer fear, by which to model the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's not USA, it's not another country, it is the church of Jesus Christ. And this is what we are a part of. See, there's a little bit of that amen, like woo-woo, but, but it comes on the, on the other side of this, of realizing we become neighbors. Here's another. We become neighbors who care more about our property lines and our personal stuff than we do about the spiritual destination of our neighbors. And listen, I'm not sharing these things to you 
to make you into a punching bag. I'm sharing these things with you because there's a moment in the people of God in their history where things began to make a turn back for a season. And these two gentlemen, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to make sure on their watch that they're going to tell everything. They're not going to hold back and just worship with hands up. They're going to worship with faces down. They're not going to trade the comfort of a new temple and a new city wall. They're not going to trade that and in and turn in their conviction. My desire for you as an individual and for me is to push away comfort and ease and trade it for conviction and grace and joy. Hear me, church. It's to turn in comfort and easy and guilt and shame and replace that with, with conviction, with grace, and with joy. And he says in chapter 17, I mean chapter 9, verse 17, right in the middle, he says, but you are God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Ezra reminds the folks. He reminds 45,000 people. He says, yeah, your heritage, your generations past, they messed up royally. They disobeyed, and it was costly. But you are a God. You, therefore, serve a God who is ready to forgive, who is gracious and is merciful, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. The history of the children of Israel is not their story. It is for us to see the faithfulness of God. The history of Rich Fork is not our story. It's to see the faithfulness of God. It's for us to be able to, to stand back and take an honest assessment and say, wow, these are some incredible things a part of our past. But as individuals, as a church, maybe we've missed it in some ways. We've sinned in some ways. We need to be convicted of some of these things. So I want to ask you a few things as we get towards our closing this morning. Are you ready to respond to the Word of God, to the conviction of God's Word? Rejoicing, worshiping, confession, brokenness, forgiveness. Are you ready to respond to the Word of God? To the Holy Spirit, John 14 through 16 tells us, will convict us, will train us will bring us joy. Are you willing to make a move in an area in which you are spiritually struggling? I, I walk through some things that God laid on my heart for us as a congregation, for us as a community of believers. But I wonder, I may not have hit yours. I, not have, I may not have hit upon that spiritual struggle, that hidden thing that you're keeping, you keep tucked away. Are you willing to make a move in an area in which you are spiritually struggling? Listen, next week begins a week I think it's going to be really important for us as a church. Uh, it's not simply a lot of things planned in one week. Uh, we've got something Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Every week, move week. Uh, you can grab the information on your way out. There's some other ways you can respond but here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to, to look at, I want you to evaluate the things that we're offering on that week and say, is there one specific area of my life that I need 
to gain insight in that I'm convicted by? Is it sharing my faith? Sunday night. Is it how to study God's word? It's Monday night. Is it how to use the resources God's given me? It's Tuesday night. If it's to worship with other believers, it's Wednesday night. If it's to gather with other men and pray together, and let me just go ahead and tell you, we're going to make you, I believe God's going to make us uncomfortable during that time of prayer. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We may fall on our face. We may stand and rejoice. We may yell amen and amen. I have no idea. Men on Thursday night, women come back on Friday night. An opportunity for you to grow, to move past some areas of comfort, maybe some areas of sinful struggles. And then Saturday to rest and Sunday to come back and rejoice together. These chapters and what we want us us to be a part of as a church is for us to realize something throughout these pages this morning. We are sinners but we serve a God who forgives. That's it. I want to move towards that God, a God who I know that I'm a sinner, but a God who forgives me and loves me anyway. I want to move towards this God of Nehemiah chapter chapter 9. I want to move towards a great God, a mighty God, an awesome God. I want to move towards a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger God, abounding in mercy. That's the God that I want to move to, and that's what we want to challenge you to do, whether it's next week, you come one night, you come all night. We want to challenge you to move towards those. That's what we're going to ask you to be a part of in groups. That's what we're asking you to do in worship is to engage and say, God, move me this morning where you need me to be in order for your word to bring conviction to my life, to bring joy, to bring grace, to bring forgiveness.